guys are gonna have to hit this hard and fast. We've got 4K left before the downgrade. like Fast and Furious, for instance. So I'm going 25 miles an hour on top of a gas trailer. But then you cut to Heidi Moneymaker, you know, my stunt double, you know, doing a backflip off of that damn thing. Mm -hmm. And she's just killing it. And that sucker was going like 40 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Big difference. It takes real freaking discipline and talent to be a stunt person. And that's why they do what they do. So I respect you guys for it. That was Michelle Rodriguez, enviously freaking the F out at the job done by the practitioners of the craft as depicted in Stunt Women, the untold Hollywood story, one of three feature-length documentaries recently released and which we feel are among the best of a recent slew of, hey, pretty damn good ones. Damn good ones. Anyone else out there old enough to remember when documentaries were the purview of PBS, Jacques Cousteau, and the Disney nature films of the 50s and 60s? Yeah, they were informative and all, but not too far removed from junior high school social studies movies where the point was for young Johnny or Janet to emerge a more well-informed individual. And while that's still the point today, since filmmakers the likes of Barbara Koppel, Michael Moore, Ken Burns, Steve James, Amy Berg, and others entered the field in the 80s and beyond, the documentary has also become one of the primary contemporary catalysts for environmental change, setting the historical record finally straight, and a wide spectrum of social activism, from setting the innocent free, finally sending those who got away with it up the river, bringing abusive political, religious, and other leaders to justice, and oh yeah, very often being as damned entertaining as any narrative film. And as such, mainstream filmmakers like Spike Lee, Vim Benders, and the late Michael Apted became known for making documentaries as regular a part of their cinematic output as their fictional films. So, now that docus are all the rage and part of the filmic mainstream, what sets one apart as unique and special and worthy of that extra bit of attention? Well, we've got three of them, not one at all like the other, but each which we feel qualifies as being among the best. The Ventures stars on guitars from director Stacey Lane Wilson, Disposable Humanity from director Cameron Mitchell, and Stunt Women, The Untold Hollywood Story from director April Wright. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, and welcome to a special edition of The Movie Sneak. What's up, Doc? Three feature documentaries every film lover needs to see.
dig it? Can you dig it? Uh, they asked me what I do. I said, well, I play the guitar. I said, well, uh, are you in a group? Ladies and gentlemen, here are the Ventures. I love the Ventures. I know you This do. is like one of my favorite groups in history. Certainly for us guitarists, Jeff, Beck, myself and Eric, we've all played Ventures material when we were kids. The Ventures. In the sixth grade grammar school, every boy in my class could play Wipeout on his desk. <laughs> Those instrumentals led the way. If you've ever owned a radio, cassette deck, 8-track player, turntable, CD player, watched TV, or went to the movies, then you know the sound of the legendary The Ventures. And if you're a millennial or later who never owned a physical copy of anything, well hey, you know their sound too. It's impossible not to. Formed in 1958, the original band consisted of Don Wilson, Bob Bogle, Noki Edwards, and Mel Taylor. And utilizing many at the time rare to non-existent elements in their music, such as 12-string guitars, flanging, and creative pedal work, aided and embedded by a unique but soon-to-be-imitated-everywhere blazing West Coast energy, they quickly became the group everyone wanted to be like. But don't take my word. The new documentary film The Ventures stars on guitars, features all-new interviews with the likes of Jimmy Page, Leon Hendricks, Eric Roberts, Billy Bob Thornton, John Fogarty, The Surfer Jets, Randy Bachman, The Neptunas, Lalo Schifrin, Ryuki, Wayne Kramer, Jeff Skunk Baxter, and more, all testifying to that fact. Hey, Stephen Stills told Don Wilson he first learned to play guitar from Ventures Records, and Jeff Baxter of Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers and Gene Simmons of Kiss were early members of the Ventures fan club. And oh yeah, there's also this obscure 60s group called uh, The Beach Boys. Their co-founder, Carl Wilson, no relation, who's gone on their record as saying the Ventures were an early inspiration and that he and the band learned to play all the Ventures songs by ear. The Go-Go, Surfing, and Spyin' was dedicated to the Ventures. Then they obtained an entire new generation of fans when Quentin Tarantino used their song Surf Rider, written by Noki Edwards, as one of the primary themes for his 1994 film Pulp Fiction. In the 1960s, they outsold the Beatles in Japan 2-1, to one, and to this day, they're still the most popular American rock group there. Often referred to as the band that launched a thousand bands, and with over 100 million records sold, the Grammy Hall of Fame and Rock and Roll Hall of Famers remain the best-selling instrumental band of all time, worldwide. So how in the hell has there never been a film, documentary or otherwise, made about them till now? Well... I'm going to let the venture stars on guitars for writer-director Stacey Lane Wilson, along with her brother, co-producer Tim Wilson, explain how this passion project about her father, Don, the last surviving member of the original group, ended up being a family affair. Movie Sneak podcast fans might remember our last interview with Stacey a few years ago, around the time of the debut of her independent horror film, Cabaret of the Dead. Well, this one's, as Monty Python used to say, something completely different. So could the two of you, for those who are not familiar with the documentary, just give us sort of the Reader's Digest uh, rundown, synopsis of it? Yeah, go ahead, Stace. <laughs> I've got this down. Yeah, it is the uh, the story of the ventures from uh, 1959 till the present. So it was really fun and interesting to encapsulate all that time down to an hour and a half documentary film with 
30, I think 38 interviewees in it. Mm. Yeah, it's it's definitely just a, a rundown of their greatest hits, basically, from the beginning until now. And the highlights, of course, are when they broke out with Walk, Don't Run, and then they had a big hit with their version of Hawaii Five O, and then they had a resurgence in the 80s with the punk and the new wave. Uh, musicians and then culminating in their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, recently, I think it was just yesterday, uh, People magazine did a review of the film, which they seem to love. That's right. Yeah, very exciting. It's really nice to get some kudos for a project. Uh, you know, unlike you mentioned Cabaret of the Dead, which is an independent horror film, I didn't get that much love <laughs> <laughs> in horror film. But working with my family on this has been great. And, you know, initially it was Tim's idea. So can you tell um, Craig about, like, how you came up with the idea, Tim? Was it? Yeah. I mean, I think it was pretty much a, a passion project for all of us. And I think the reason the movie is getting so much acclaim or popularity is that, you know, uh, all Ventures fans are very passionate about the Ventures and what they've done for, for music. So I actually went to, the whole idea kind of sparked up. I went two years ago, I went to see the Jersey Boys <laughs> with my sister Jill and my niece and nephew and my mom. And uh, instantly started thinking, wow, because there was an ABBA theater one, there was a Queen, there was a Jimi Hendrix. And I thought, you know, this might work for the Ventures. And uh, went to uh, the Ventures uh uh, entertainment attorney and we start talking about it and then they brought it to uh, Paradise Records and he was very interested in doing it and uh, kind of tried to make it work for a couple years but for some reason it just didn't go forward and then I thought well you know next step was do a documentary or talk about a documentary so instantly again I mentioned it to the ventures manager and the attorney and they came up with a company called uh, Blue Water Entertainment to try to do a documentary and that kind of went sideways. He got a divorce and <laughs> things happened and then that kind of went by the wayside. Then we had another company that was going to do it and we were having, you know, not be able to come to an agreement and stuff. So with that being said, uh, about 20, 25 years ago when Stacy got into the entertainment industry, you know, I really encouraged her and thought, you know, she could be super good at this. And as it turned out, I'm very proud of her. She is super good at this. And um, so I went to dad. I was just talking to dad and I said, hey, why don't we let Stacy do this? She is a filmmaker and uh, she's got all of the, the talent to get this done. And he agreed. And so which was the best thing that could have happened. I think it was almost fate. I think those other ones mm -hmm. went by the wayside for a good reason. And anyway, Stacy uh, and us, we've all collaborated with contacts and different people and things. But Stacy basically has taken the helm on this and, and I'm real proud of her. Nice. Every band in the world had walked on run in their set. Not the Johnny Smith or the Chet Atkins version, it was the Ventures version. I think the Ventures made music that uh, was maybe wasn't accessible to the average person. They took a like a jazz, a complicated jazz tune like Walk Don't Run, and made it into like a simpler arrangement for rock, like a rock and roll arrangement. Um, which made a lot of kids go, you know, I, I want to learn that. The chord progression to the rhythm guitar part on Walk Don't Run was the very first thing I ever learned on guitar. When we would listen and we were trying to play note for note, we tried to pick it out, wait, do that again. And you lift up the needle and go. 
and you do it again. Lift up that needle one more time. I think I might have it this time. It's going to come back and... No, that's not... Until you got the little part. I would write all the chords down and I would make the sheet music and I would sell it to the local bands. They were probably the first guitar teachers most of us ever had. Now just the mechanics of it all, um, considering all the people involved, the interviews and, uh, and what have you, uh, to actually finish this within two to three years is pretty awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, it seems that way. I mean, I have heard of a lot of people working on documentaries for 10 years or more, and um, I don't know if I could handle that. I like to do things quickly and efficiently. Mm -hmm. So to me, three years seems like a very long time, and it just <laughs> feels really good to finally have it out there so everyone can see it because of course over the years the ventures fans have been you know emailing all of us saying when's the movie gonna be out so now mm -hmm. it's finally out and it feels really good now folks who want to see it uh, where can they find it um, well, it's pretty much streaming everywhere, Prime, iTunes, uh, Voodoo, Vimeo, YouTube Plus, and it's also available on DVD. Awesome. And now, um, I guess more from the filmmaker point of view, as opposed to those with a studio safety blanket, if that even exists anymore these days, you film this independently, and right now, there are a lot of people moving from L.A. these days. Uh, you've got wildfires, you've got a real estate crisis, you've got the massive COVID shutdowns, which hopefully will eventually pass. Uh, but without them, you have those other factors. So for someone interested in entering the independent film industry and thinking of relocating to L.A. to do it, do you have any advice for them who may be listening? Is it possible to do that anymore or, or, or necessary? Uh, well, on how wealthy you might be. <laughs> Because if you have unlimited funds and resources, not to mention sanity, <laughs> because just L.A. is very difficult to live in lately just because of all the um, noise. I mean, you know, there's helicopters constantly going uh, above. There's always sirens going. You know, if you wanted to record a simple podcast, you'd really have to... Uh, um, soundproof your entire apartment but uh, the most recent project that I did was when I was still living in LA in December and we did shoot that mm -hmm. um, technical know-how and uh, you know the the will to do it you can pr pretty much make films from anywhere nowadays and one more question kind of sort of unrelated but it kind of sort of is it is music related and film related um, I noticed I mean I am from the Philadelphia New Jersey area and uh, notice that you're about to begin work on a film about Eddie Testa, whom in this area we all know quite a bit about. Could you give us a little heads up about uh, about that? Yeah, well, that's still in um, pre-production. Carrie Fleming, who is the producer and screenwriter, um, he hired me to direct it. And I have mm -hmm. talked to Eddie Testa a few times, and he is the real inspiration behind Eddie and the Cruisers. Mm -hmm. So it'll be really fun to get that going. But, you know, with COVID right now, it's quite difficult to do any sort of project where you have to film concert scenes and crowd scenes and things mm -hmm. like that. We want to recreate that excitement of, of being, you know, a musician in New Jersey in the late 70s and early 80s. And will that be a narrative film or a documentary film? It is a documentary, but we'll have a lot of recreation scenes. Uh, unlike the Ventures documentary, which uses animation to recreate the stories mm -hmm. that Dad tells. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. And um, we'll definitely uh, provide links 
uh, to the various outlets, uh, the various video on demand outlets, as well as uh, the outlet to your website where people can purchase the DVD as well. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Greg, awesome. thank you so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Uh, pleasure talking to you again, Stacy, and pleasure talking to you for the first time, Tim. <laughs> yes, it was my pleasure. During the Nazi ascent to power, hospitals and institutions were taken over, as well as the subsequent mass murder of over 300,000 disabled people. This program has become known amongst activists and historians as Action T4. In addition to the devaluation of disabled life, we argue that T4 provided the technology necessary to implement the Holocaust. Why tell the story of T4 now? We believe it's more relevant than ever given the current social and political treatment of people with disabilities. T4 commenced with an expansion of physician-assisted suicide laws, cuts to social support systems, the abandonment of ideals of ending permanent institutionalization, and the emptying of family bank accounts to pay for one's own medical treatment. By telling the story of T4, we can help to recognize the patterns that brought about the previous historical atrocities. Cameron, thanks for joining us here uh, at the Movie Sneak. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. And uh, for those who may have seen some of the notes I posted, where uh, I frequently referred to Cameron, Cameron as my favorite cinematographer. <laughs> And the reason is because a few years back, uh, we were working on a documentary film and uh, here in Philadelphia and Mars, PA. And uh, he made the thing look um, like it cost 10 times more than it did. And I was just so impressed, so blown away. I had a lot of ideas in my head, but uh, every now and then Cameron would say, hey, I have a better one. We would try it. And it just blew me away. So uh, I look forward to working with the guy again in the near future. So that's why I call him my favorite cinematographer. <laughs> well, you're, you're too kind. Cool, man. Uh, just calling him as I see him, as the umpire says. <laughs> so presently, um, fascinating film you're working on these days called Disposable Humanity. Could you please let us know about it? Yeah, so uh, the logline for this film is a exploration into the history and memory of Nazi medical euthanasia. And a lot of people might be surprised to hear that uh, disabled people were also victims of Nazi euthanasia. Um, in fact, they were among the first victims. Um, quickly after Hitler assumes power, um, a sterilization law was passed in July of 1933, uh, and health courts were established to rule uh, invol over different subjects involuntarily being sterilized, whether based on various hereditary illnesses, whether that be alcoholism, mm. deafness, you know, any, any kind of congenital disability. Um, so the film kind of is reckons with that history and asks the question, why isn't this more known? Why aren't we taught about this in school? Why is the the memorial to T4 victims, the program, the secret program was called Action T4 uh, for the address of the administrative building in Berlin that processed the medical files, Tiergartenstrasse 4 in Berlin. And, you know, why have, why is that memorial on Tiergartenstrasse 4 the last of all of the Holocaust victims to be memorialized as of 2006? Wow. 
So yeah, that's I don't I don't know how much further you want me to go into it, but I can I can go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly, um, you have in film uh, gone into the subject of uh, disabilities before. Can you uh, let our audience know, like some of your short films that have dealt with that topic? Yeah, sure. Um, so I actually have um, two short films that have attempted to tackle the matter of disability in, in film representation. Uh, one of them, my first short film, was called The Co-op and mm -hmm. is about a robber whose plans go awry when he realizes that the co-op he has targeted is full of disabled people. Mm -hmm. And a second uh, short film called Regenesis, which deals with a... Uh, a more sci-fi genre film where a man receives a regenerative procedure to give him the ability to walk again, and he decides that he doesn't want it. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, I, by the way, I also want to mention uh, the Easter Seals Disability Film Challenge. That's really mm -hmm. what got me going with these short films and gave me the space to make them and to do them. Um, Nick Novicki, the guy who runs it, has really been instrumental in getting my films out there. Uh, you know, both have had a lot of international appeal and success thanks to Easter Seals. Um, we've been everywhere from Barcelona to Prague, uh, all, all the way to um, even, let me think, um, it's hard. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, all over the place. Uh, Leeds, you know, it, we've really, we've toured the world at this point with these short films and nice. actually coming up here this February, on February 12th, the co-op will be having its world premiere at Slamdance. So when did this subject first start to gnaw, start to grab at your heartstrings, and, and, and you first decided, this? I have to tell this story? So um, my parents uh, actually got me started from a very young age in film. Uh, they're documentary filmmakers themselves, uh, and they're also professors of disability studies. Mm. Uh, so you can see the easy connection there. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, so from a young age, I was traveling all over the world and helping them, you know, in you know, whatever capacity a nine-year-old can help <laughs> his, <laughs> right. his parents. Uh, in, in making these films, and I make an appearance in a couple of them. Uh, oh, really? Cool. Yeah. Um, so, uh, A World Without Bodies and Vital Signs Crip Culture Talks Back are two of their you know most well-known and awarded titles. Um, nice. They won the Moscow Film Festival wow. uh, maybe uh, 10 years back. These are a little bit, they're older films. They're from the late mm -hmm. 90s, early 2000s. Um, but, you know, that really sparked my interest and a world without bodies was the film that they made uh, about t4 originally um they were presenting on american eugenics in germany and somebody stood up and said do you know that germans also participated in eugenics uh and euthanasia against disabled people and they said no we weren't aware and they told them you know right around the corner there was the hadamar killing facility wow uh, and so you know of course our, our family has always had this investigative nature mm. we always you know we're not afraid to turn away from the hard topic for many of these traumatic survivor stories in the immediate aftermath of war there was nobody who wanted to hear them other families also my family were lied to most families do not know about it or do not deal with it T4 could only work if all branches of administration, if all branches of bureaucracy closely cooperated. 
If one pillar would say no, then the whole construction would collapse. Here in one year, in 1940, 10,654 people were killed, men, women and children. Some of them got life prison. Some of the nurses received 15, 20 years. Nevertheless, by the end of the 1950s, almost all of these individuals were out. Somehow it was worse to kill normal individuals than it was to kill persons with disabilities. So we as a family, me, my sister, my mom and my dad went to this, uh, toured this killing facility um, and then proceeded to, they proceeded to make a film on the, the Bernberg uh, T4 Center um, called The World Without Bodies. Um, so it's been in my mind for a while. I wanted to make a film that captured the entirety of this program because it, it didn't just encompass one area. It was, you know, there were six uh, T4 centers all over Germany um, and in Austria. Um, Hartheim, Grafneck, Bernberg, Brandenburg, um, Sonnenstein, Pirna, and I'm forgetting one. I always forget one. <laughs> uh Hard time. Oh, and Hadamar. <clears throat> okay. And um, so, you know, their film focused on just one, the Bernberg, but I wanted to make a film that, you know, really en encapsulated the entirety of this program because, mm -hmm. you know, over 300,000 disabled people were targeted and Jesus. killed by the end of this thing. And, you know, that's before any of the death camps were established. The, wow. The killing technology was very much, you could say, researched in, in this T4 period. Um, and, and, you know, you'll, you see that the Holocaust heavily relies on the guise of being a medical practice. They have doctors mm -hmm. on the ramps of Auschwitz. Uh, separating people into groups and choosing who can work and who should be sent straight to be killed. Hmm. Jesus. Wow. So what, um, where, where is the film now? Uh, how far along are you in, in, in finishing the film? So we're in post-production now. Um, it, it's been uh, a labor of love. We've been, you know, from the initial idea in 2013, you know, we're going on seven years now. Wow. <laughs> uh, uh -huh. We did the, the, the principal f photography in 2017. Uh, in the summer of 2017, we spent three months going around Germany, uh, Austria. We even went to London um, to interview some important key subjects. Mm -hmm. And so now we've got about an hour and 20 minutes and counting, um, you know, and we've been kind of practicing in a, a little bit of, I guess you could call an unorthodox approach to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to kind of building up a grassroots movement. Uh, we've mm -hmm. been showing uh, bits and segments of the film all over at various universities. We just showed uh, uh, an introduction uh, to the University of Dundee in Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, a few weeks before that, we did one at the University of Michigan. Uh, you know, and you know, thankfully, because of kind of the, the academic context of the film, I think there's a lot yeah. of different connectors here, a lot of different people and areas of interest that intersect with this film. So that's been really exciting for us. Nice. Now, for those who might want to learn more about the film, might want to get behind and support the film, where can they go? Where can they find out more info? How can they uh, connect with you? So you can visit our website, which is www.disposablehumanity.com. 
Um, and you can sign up and subscribe uh, for future emails. You can also make donations at that website. If you want to, you know, be even more tapped in, we've got uh, several social media handles, which are pretty active. Our, our Facebook is facebook.com slash disposable humanity film. And our Instagram is just at disposable humanity. Mm-hmm. All right. And those links will be on the movie sneak page for this episode. So people can just, uh, you know, click them right there if they like to. Cool. Awesome. So, wow. Thanks so much for doing this, man. That is absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> thanks <laughs> Can't for, wait to see the thanks finish for having film. me. Absolutely. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Yep. See you, Craig. It was JD, me. JD was doubling Pam Greer. I was playing a lesbian, and I go up to the bar, and I try to put the make on this girl, and she don't want any part of me, and Pam Greer comes running in, and the fight breaks out, and we're in this big fist fight flying across the room, and my sister went through the jukebox, and Pam wanted to take a picture off the wall, and she was going to hit me over the head with it, and I said, now take a step forward so you get in the center. Well, she didn't, so she caught me on the edge and split my head wide open. So I had to be hauled off to the operating room and get about 10 stitches in my head. Did you get a concussion as well? I don't remember. I went out drinking afterwards. stunt from True Lies is truly a stunt performer's dream come true. We're hovering up there in the sky, swinging back and forth, and all I hear is constant. So all I can hear is the helicopter with the wind blowing. I finally get down to the limousine, it's going about 50 miles an hour. All of a sudden it becomes really surreal and dream state, because all I can see is this massive wall of fire and smoke, and I know somewhere after that, I'm taking off, this limo's gone. And then all of a sudden, phew, unreal. Because at that moment, I was out there looking at me here and directing myself and telling myself, awesome, all good, beautiful. All these words were coming through my mind, you know, as I was going phew, off into the sun. Amazing. Amazing. Everyone loves a badass action movie. Hey, even those who say they aren't into them? Nah, they do. Everybody, regardless of how benign and peacefully centered, a part of them loses their serious... uh, stuff when Roger Moore's James Bond is pushed out of an airplane without a parachute and has to free fall down onto the back of a descending villain to steal his... When Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow leaps, spins, and kicks massive behind in what appears to be a fighting style, which is the fisticuff gene splice version of Bruce Lee, Nadia Comaneci, and Shabadoo. But yeah, we all know most of the time that's not really Roger or Scarlett or McQueen, Eastwood, Jamie Lee Curtis, or Michelle Rodriguez. We know it's a stunt performer. And that's what makes it so damn exciting 
because unlike with CGI stand-ins, you know that's really some wild, super trained and ridiculously professional and daring actual person up there damn near defying the laws of physics. Just as in early Hollywood, where there was a higher percentage of women screenwriters, animators, and producers than even in the 80s and 90s, so back then did stunt women once confound cinemagoers' imaginations as they leapt from motorcycles to trains, clung from high buildings, lassoed horses, took high dives, and more. That is, until the industry realized how lucrative films were, then many of those jobs were snagged by men in drag. But the badass gals of the big and small screen were determined to never take a back seat, and director April Wright brings their story, from the early days to the present, to the fore with the newly released feature documentary, Stunt Women, The Untold Hollywood Story. Hosted by the fast and the furious Michelle Rodriguez, and featuring interviews with nearly 50 A-list directors and producers, and of course, stunt women who tell their own story with stirring and at times heartbreaking recollections and the best scene from some of Hollywood's greatest action flicks, director Wright refers to her film as an action documentary. But truth is, it's a badass action movie, period, in its own right. Great to talk to you. Um, yeah, thank thanks for reaching out about this. Absolutely. Uh, I was following a few postings late last year about the film, and my first reaction was, damn, that sounds cool as hell. Uh, and then I saw that it was finally released, and I actually just bought the damn thing. Uh, I bought it on um, on Prime. Uh-huh. <laughs> And uh, I was hoping to now just just uh, to find out from you, are there any Blu-rays or DVDs available or is it just available for streaming right now? Right now, it's just um, streaming. Okay. And we're releasing theatrically in Japan on Friday. I'm sure down the road we'll be on streamer on a streamer. They're still working on whatever deal that's going to be. And I'm sure because Shout Factory is releasing it that Mm -hmm. um they have you know big dvd blu-ray collection so i'm sure it will get there eventually too okay very very cool uh i guess just to start off um like i mentioned before uh the particular episode that we're doing uh and i'll it's going to be with three different filmmakers all of whom have documentaries uh coming out right about now and you're you're the third and final one just want to talk about the film a little bit, but before we get there, just a quick little Reader's Digest capsule of when someone takes a look at your history as a filmmaker, you see that you were doing a number of narrative shorts, and then you sort of segued into films about film. <laughs> you know? Actually, that's backwards. <laughs> oh, really? Uh-huh. I started um, when I, so so I had a career in business first. I actually have a master's degree from the Kellogg School at Northwestern, okay. and I worked for a lot of big companies and did consulting, but film was always my love. Um, my family was really into films, and so I, I grew up, you know, just being aware of film and watching, like, everything that came out, every genre, and paying attention to directors and actors and finding them early in their careers. So it's just kind of the thing I always loved. And I switched into filmmaking about 15 years ago. And um, the first thing I had made, um, we shot a film that I wrote um, that ended up being kind of a B-horror movie called um, Killer Yacht Party. So I wrote that and I got to be on set and involved with all the steps of making that film. And I, once I did that, I was like, Oh, I knew I wanted to direct eventually, but I am, you know, I want to direct right now. 
And that same uh, year in 2005 is when I started researching my documentary about drive-in movie theaters. And I went on the road um, shooting that in 2006 and 2007. And then in 2007, I shot my first narrative film that I directed. Um, and um, and that, that's called Layover. It was just a very, very small film, premiered at CineQuest Film Festival. And... Um, and then, yeah, and then I, you know, eventually finished the drive-in film. Documentaries can take a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I did the follow-up to that, which also just released this fall um, on VOD. We were doing a theatrical run before COVID hit, but um, they're called Going Attractions. The definitive story of the American drive-in movie was the first one. And the second one is the definitive story of the movie Palace. And then just to keep my chops up, you know, while I was, you know, making these documentaries that took a while, I made shorts in between. So I'm kind of the backwards of other filmmakers that start with shorts and then move on to features. I only made features first. Okay. And then I started making shorts just to do something in the meantime while my features were taking a long time. And then, yeah, and then eventually I got brought in to direct the Stuntwoman documentary. And um, so, yeah. I'm kind of all, all over the place in a way, but, you know, just kind of into whatever I'm into. If it's something that I really like, whether it's a narrative story or a documentary, um, you know, the, the the format of the way the story is told, if it's something that I'm into. <laughs> gotcha. No, that's awesome. And I've always admired filmmakers who are constantly doing something. It's sort of like the filmic equivalent of, I remember reading an interview with Stephen King, where he just said he always has to be writing something. So even when he finishes an epic length novel of eight or 900 pages, you would think you'd want to chill. And I find this, you know, I'll work on something and you think you want to chill and you say, yeah, I'm going to take a rest after this. But you don't. You still got a little, as he said, gas in the tank and you want to burn it off doing something. Especially right now during this COVID and the lockdown, um, you know, if I didn't, I, I was just telling my brother today, if I didn't have all these projects to work on, I don't know what I would be doing. And for a long time, I had, you know, just half finished scripts or, you know, things that need to be edited or whatever. I had a whole back burner of things that I was never getting to. And I always wished I had time to get to those things. I didn't know I would actually get, Lo and get my wish and I didn't want it in <laughs> this way. But, um, but I have been really productive during, during the lockdown, working on new things. So how were you brought in to, um, to Stunt Women? Um, so Stunt Women, um, there was a book first of the same title, mm -hmm. Stunt Women, The Untold Hollywood Story. And it was written by a woman named Molly Gregory. And um, she had been a board member of Women in Film. And a couple mm -hmm. of the producers um, that optioned her book, I knew some of them also from Women in Film. And so they had talked to me about wanting to turn it into a film. And um, like you mentioned up top, I had the experience of doing other films about cinema um, and the history of cinema from, you know, just different obscure points of view, <laughs> mm -hmm, <laughs> from, mm -hmm. you know, drive-ins, movie palaces, and then now stunts. And, um, and, and also dealing with clips and footage and all of that kind of goes hand in hand. So, um, and I had just um, serendipitously uh, was talking to the stuntwoman, Amy Johnston, who was in the film. I, mm -hmm. I was working with her boyfriend and she and I, you know, wanted to support women filmmakers. And we talked about doing something together. And uh, around the same time, um, Svetlana Svetko, who is our DP 
I've known her from years and she's known for shooting docs. Um, she shot Inside Job, which ended up winning the Oscar. And we wanted to work on a project. So when um, Stunt Women came in, I was like, oh, I've got a Stunt Woman. I've got a great DP. And we kind of put the pieces and the pitch together and got the funding and um, and made it. And it was made independently. And then we got distribution through a company called MPX and Shout Factory. In the early 80s, we had no idea some of these films would become classics. Scarface was one of my first movies. A year after Roe vs. Wade passed, Policewoman debuted. The wave of feminism in the 70s was reflected in pop culture as female characters became better, stronger, faster. People took a lot more risks back then. I actually became aware about stunts by watching the movie Hooper. I had to do a transfer from a helicopter to a biplane. You're not honest if you don't say there's a little bit of fear. Sometimes the business isn't kind, and there's only so many jobs, and there's a whole lot of people. The popularity of disaster films in the 70s also added to the world. That's just supply and demand. They needed more stunt women, and suddenly more women wanted to do stunts. But women taking a long fall down a long flight of stairs was nothing new. In many ways, Hollywood during the teens was on the cutting edge. They were employing uh, women and they were employing immigrants. The heyday of these serials, so many of them were led by women. There were more women directing and more women owning production companies in the teens than there were in the 80s. I was most impressed of all that was the motorcycle yes. onto the train, because yes. there's no fake in that. No. She was on a motorcycle, and then she got onto a moving train from a motorcycle. That was amazing. So how long a shoot was it? Um, maybe eight months to a year. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, a lot of documentaries can be longer. We... You know, as opposed to somewhere this where the story is unfolding now, we were dealing with history. Mm -hmm. um, but the book went up to about 2007, and I really wanted to bring it into the present day and not just have people talking about the past. You know, get us into the real world of stunt women today. And I, I kept saying, you know, my mantra was, "We want it to be an action documentary." Mm -hmm. You know, you're there's there's history, there is information, there are some talking heads, but there's a lot of exciting action too. And, um, and I think the hardest part um, production-wise was getting access to sets and also just coordinating to get the people, you know, on the schedules of the people that we wanted in the film. Um, you know, we have a couple big directors in there and we have a lot of stunt women who are mm -hmm. top in their field. And so they're working all the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. So like when we got, you know, Heidi and Renee Moneymaker we actually went down to the Marvel studios, to the Marvel set in Atlanta, mm -hmm. Pinewood Studios, where they shoot. And Renee was um, doubling Scarlett Johansson on Avengers Endgame. And uh, Heidi was doubling her. And Renee was uh, doubling on Ant-Man and the Wasp. And they were shooting in downtown Atlanta. So they brought Heidi back to, you know, the sound stages. And we were, you know, they wouldn't let us, of course, see... <laughs> Uh, what right. we were shooting for Endgame, um, although Tilda Swinton was there, and I, I didn't realize that she had actually died and was coming back. So that was a, <laughs> that was a spoiler we knew that. <laughs> <laughs> you had to keep quiet on. Well, I didn't know it was a spoiler, and um, 
but yeah, and the, the soundstage where we shot that one, um, actually the Guardians of the Galaxy ship is what you see in the background, although it's not that clear. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, so we, you know, that took a little while to coordinate that, but, um, but we went down to Atlanta to shoot those ladies. And of course, we went up to Vancouver on the set of the X-Files series where Melissa Stubbs was doing the stunt coordinating and um, and we got up there and that was a lot of fun. So, yeah. Well, it's funny because you're actually answering a bunch of questions that I had written down before I even asked them, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you um, about the logistics of it, uh, about, you know, lining up the various, uh, you know, stunt personnel who were in the film. Uh, I was even going to mention, and I guess we can go into this a little bit, just about the technique. I mean, how I, I'd even used the phrase, I mean, most documentaries can be just a series of talking heads. Yeah. And I just love how here it moves. Um uh, like you said, it's an action documentary, and even just the various camera angles you use, even um, like the one scene where I forgive me, I forget the uh, this particular stunt woman. She's about to do the fall, and you hear heartbeat on the soundtrack, and there are there's a lot of audio, great audio editing, visual editing when you're talking to the three uh, women in the gym. Um, and how the camera is sort of on the floor, kind of looking up at them. There are all of these different things to keep the eye moving yeah. and to hold the audience's attention instead of just having a two-dimensional talking head after another two-dimensional talking head, which I loved. Thank you so much. Yeah, we ended up with a couple talking heads just out of necessity. Um, right. You know, sometimes plans change last minute and somebody else who was supposed to be there couldn't. So, you end up, you know, you ended up with a single person or whatever. But, um, but yeah, we did the best we could in all of those aspects. And, and just like you said, having a good team, having, you know, good cinematographers, having, you know, just that, that mantra of keeping it as an action documentary. And, um, and also I take a, a great deal of care with my documentaries to try to show diverse points of view to tell the mm -hmm. story so that, you know, you're getting all sides of it and you're having all different types of people um, contribute to the story. So that was another thing we tried to do in terms of, you know, who we picked to be in the film. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, just a couple of nuts and bolts questions. Um, one would be, I did notice that later in the film, uh, in the section where, uh, oh, and also, I, I also loved how you don't just have one interviewer. I love how you have different, you know, people in the profession interviewing those who came before them. That yeah. was freaking fantastic. Uh, but later in the film, where they start talking about some of the onset tragedies which may have happened, mm -hmm. I specifically no noticed that the particular films were not mentioned. Was that because of legal reasons? No. Or just a coincidence? No, they weren't for legal reasons. Um, it was just, you know, how people told the story and okay. wanted to focus more on the stunt women and how, right. you know, how they felt about each other in the community um, versus calling out the names of things. I mean, the, okay. the accident on set, we did say it was Cannonball Run. Right. And the producer that there is talking about it, he was a... Albert Ruddy, yeah. Uh -huh. Al Ruddy was a producer on Cannonball Run, so we're hearing it, you know, from okay. one of the horse's mouths. Mm -hmm. The one um, uh, death was on um, the Eddie Murphy Vampire in Brooklyn. That's right. That's Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and 
sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, we had to tell it and we had to honor those people because that is part of the story and that does happen sometimes. Um, usually not, but um, mm -hmm. but it, it's part of it. Now, I guess uh, I guess wrapping up, I know that, um, as you said, with this particular documentary, a lot of it had to be planned in advance because of various schedules and things. But Orson Welles once had a famous quote about documentaries. He said, when you're doing a narrative film, the director's God. When you're doing a documentary film, God is the director because anything can happen. <laughs> <laughs> and so did you have any Orson Welles moments? <laughs> in, uh, not to contradict Orson Welles, but here's how I look at when I approach documentary. I feel like I'm making a film but the subjects of my film rule and tell me how to tell the story, who to talk to. Um, you develop an obligation to the subjects because it's their world, it's their lives, it's their livelihood, and they know it the best. So you just have to get to know your subjects, get immersed in their world, pay attention, listen to them, and they'll tell you how to tell their story. So, you know, you can't be an outsider looking in, telling it how you think you see it. You have to get inside and tell it from the inside out. Excellent. Excellent. And, uh, okay, so what? Uh, so pretty much right now, um, Stunt Women is available pretty much everywhere. <laughs> Am I correct to watch? If you go on iTunes, Amazon, Voodoo, Google Play, everywhere that you can rent, you know, what, what is renting now, digital renting mm -hmm. of a new movie, it's available everywhere right now. You can find it. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, oh, and I guess the, the last question, um, anything you happen to be working on right now uh, on the front burner? So much. <laughs> I, I'm, I can't say the names of anything because nothing's quite that far along. But, yeah, there's a couple documentaries, documentary series, and also some um, narrative series, um, you know, for television or streaming. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I've been very productive over over the lockdown, and I'm working with a lot of great people. So I'm very hopeful some of those will get traction soon here in the new year. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for doing this big time. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I'm, I'm, there's, you know, see the film. They're so amazing. These women's will, these women will completely inspire you. You'll, you'll be glad that you've seen it. If you're any type of film lover at all, or anybody who's about, you know, equality and pushing forward people who've, whose voices you don't usually see and hear, you know, this film is about all those things. Excellent. All right. Thanks again. <laughs> thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, believe me now, see, told you, damn phenomenal films and filmmakers all. And huge thanks to those filmmakers, Stacey Lane Wilson, Cameron Mitchell, and April Wright for allowing us to be a part of sharing their passions with those of you listening. And for those listening who want to know more about The Ventures, Disposable Humanity, and Stunt Women, be it more background on the making of the films and those involved, or simply where and how to see them, we provided links on our main Movie Sneak Art 19 network page. Well, that'll do it for this time. Until we meet again, I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, and thanks for joining me at the Movie Sneak. See you again next time, up there in those cheap seats.
reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only. 